Yeah, open open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Um, today is going to be interesting because last week, last time, a couple of weeks, three weeks ago, I think it was, I, I preached. Um, you'll notice that I didn't cry once, which was some sort of record. Um, today will probably be a little bit different, um, <laughs> uh, more regular. Um, I was actually almost going to pull a Jonathan, but I think I've changed my mind and have a, a song in the middle of this. But um, we might we might keep that <laughs> for later. Uh, before we begin in worship, I was I was just crying because there was a a, a line there that went um, in only you my knee to only you my knee will bow or something. What was that from? It, um, okay. Anyway, so only 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 God will make my knee bow is what sort of what the line was saying, and then the word gave the Lord gave me a, a prophetic word, um, which I I just like to share. Um, and it's for Daniel. Um, and I don't know why your parents named you Daniel, and I'm hesitant to go on prophetic words that line up with people's names because it sounds a little bit cliche. Um, but I, I think it was no accident. I think the Lord put that name in your parents' mouth um, when they decided to name you. And uh, so I'd just like to share one or two things from Daniel. And that I think the Lord has for your life. <clears throat> Daniel was taken into the most evil place to work in the world. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, I hear Christians complaining on a daily basis that they don't work in a Christian work environment where it's all easy and everyone loves Jesus and no one needs them. Um, Daniel was taken into the worst place in the world to work. The most evil person in the world was his employer. But... Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Um, so you in your life won't defile yourself with the things that are available where the Lord puts you. And two, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And I feel like the Lord is going to teach you and give you skill in literature and wisdom and understanding in dreams and visions. Daniel's response to, to God revealing Nebuchadnezzar's dream was that he blessed the God of heaven. And your life is going to be about blessing the God of heaven for the work that he does before you. When asked how he knew things, Daniel said to the king, No wise men, enchanters, musicians, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mysteries that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You will live a life in tune with a God who reveals mysteries to you, and you will not claim them as your own wisdom, but point towards God. Daniel was commanded amongst everyone else to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever did not fall down was to be cast into a burning fiery furnace. In your life, it is only God who will make your nibah. The fire had no power over the bodies of those men. And the fire of Satan will have no power 
over your body and your life. Daniel, the Lord has called you to be a prophet. You will weep and you will cry for nations and kings and bring them in prayer to God. Keep your mouth for his words only. And the scripture the Lord gives me finally for you is Psalm 81.10. Daniel, open your mouth wide and the eye will fill it. This is the, Lord, the word of the Lord to you. Bless you. I'd love to pray for you later. Okay. I know it started. Maybe we'll get it out now. Right, so there's some people, we were singing it as well with my soul. And if you're a believer, that's true, whether you feel it or not, and it's about appropriating that in your life. But there are some people here for whom it is not well in their soul. And today, it's not just for the people for whom it's well in their soul, it is for you. If that's just one of you, then that's more than enough. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come and convict those for whom it is well in their soul, that they would experience that in their life as their reality presently and not just as their eternal reality. And for those whom it is not true, that you will draw them and put in them a burning fire in their veins that brings them up later on to receive Jesus. Okay, I think we'll be good for a while now. Um, Last week, uh, last time I preached, I started off by saying God is, and that there is nothing more foundational, nothing more central, and nothing more consummate than this fact. And since our worship is a response to this fact, we should take great care in examining our response. In the New Testament, we saw that there was an utterly radical, stunning degree of indifference to worship as an outward and localized ritual. And a radical intensification of worship as an inward and Christward experience of the heart. We noted that the new covenant does not need a building, a priesthood, or a sacrificial system. It needs the risen Jesus who is the temple. We noted that authentic worship was shown to be um, worship that is in spirit and in truth. Meaning, in spirit meaning something happening mainly inwardly in the heart. And in truth meaning being informed by true views of God. And we concluded by examining the New Testament emphasis on holiness in life is the transmutation of the old covenant sacrificial system. And finally, that teaching in the, in the epistles in the New Testament points that to that life is lived as worship. So today, as promised, we're going to be looking a little bit at how life is lived as worship, as worship and what is going on in the heart. One of my favorite things about God is that he is wonderful way maker. He made a way out of Egypt for the Israelites, and he made a way out of the dominion of sin for us. Just as the, the water washed away the oppression and dominion of the Israelites by the Egyptians, Jesus' blood washes away the dominion and the oppression of sin over our lives. It is his blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness and makes it possible for us to worship God. So if you are not made righteous by his blood, 
and you worship God, it'll be devil worship. Because there is a veil over your heart and your eyes, which means that you cannot worship God. So we're going to look at what he does to make us worshipers. We're born worshipers, every single one of us. But our fractured nature in Adam means that we are born worshippers of us. As Jonathan said the week before last, we are selfish, we are not self-denying. We are proud. The Bible focuses hugely on the rooting out of pride. It shows how God actively opposes the proud and humbles them. He brings down the high and the self-exalting, and he raises up the broken, the downtrodden, and the Christ-exalting. The reason this world is in the state that it is, is because it is a self-exalting world and not a Christ-exalting world. Period. That is the condition of the world, is that it is self-exalting. The definition of being born under sin is slavery to the wills of the flesh and not to the wills of the spirit. But when we are born again, this new birth takes us out of slavery to sin and into slavery to righteousness. Using the human word slavery because we, it's probably the easiest way we can picture it. But either way, we will have a master. On this note, since we will have a master either way, I'd like to speak about atheism. Someone, I think someone in this church, a friend of mine on Facebook put a post up yesterday saying that atheism, it might have been Joe, atheism is a temporary condition. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I I saw that and I began to cry because I said, Lord, do not let my life be the reason that someone's knee bows unwillingly. Mm. I would love my life to be a life that causes people's knees to bow willingly. Do this for us, God. Okay, how is life lived as worship? I've got two scriptures. The one is Hebrews 11 verse 6, um, which is the shorter one. Um, Sylvie? 11 verses 6. Got it? Okay. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, God is, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So the first part is how life is lived as worship is that life has to be a life of faith because aside from that, it is impossible to please God. And it is worship that pleases God. And it is faith that empowers us to a a righteous life lived 
in the outworking of the blood of Jesus by the power of the Spirit in us. So that's the first one. It was just more, more of um, a, a context. Um, but the principal body of text for this part of the discussion is Romans 12 verses 1. If you just have that up. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And I'd like to highlight to you that offering our bodies as living sacrifices is a response to grace. Because it says, in view of God's mercy. So because of what he's done for you, therefore. And we're going to have a, a little bit of a look at how we do this. So in understanding the gravity of the scripture... We need to start with the profound and humbling truth that's given to us in Scripture. We cannot serve God in the sense of Him needing anything from us. So where the Bible talks about serving God, it's serving in the house of God. That's doing the will of God. But it's not service, it's serving in the sense that He needed anything from us. And I'll show you this. Two, two key texts are Acts 17, 25. It says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, but he himself gives to everyone life and breath and everything. And secondly, Mark 10, verse 45, Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now, these scriptures point towards his sovereign intervention in our lives as a free gift that we could not do anything to merit. This is why his sacrifice for us on the cross is grace and not compensation. I regard it as a terrible thought that I could earn my salvation. What sort of God would die out of indebtedness to me? Because of my actions, not my God, not my King of glory, not the Lord of hosts, not the Alpha and Omega, not I am that I am. He died for me because of Romans 5 verse 8, that he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me because he loves me. He has never been in the bondage of debt. Which is why he was able to set me free from my enslavement to sin as a, as a child of the devil in Adam and secure me as a child in Christ Jesus. This is humbling because it eliminates pride. My pride says I can do this. I can achieve righteousness. But the Bible tells me not one. Not even one. It cuts through the deceitful root of self-sufficiency and points to the life-giving vine of the all-sufficiency of Christ. And so pride says, I have to do something. But Jesus says, you couldn't do anything. So I will serve you. That's the picture of the gospel. You can't serve God to be served by God. Jesus came to serve you. 
since it's God who serves us in that he gives us life and life in abundance, then what practically does this mean in terms of presenting our body as living sacrifices? And why does our transformation by the renewing of our minds, which is the next part of this verse, uh, prove, mean that we can prove or approve the will of God? As a living sacrifice, we do not present our bodies on a physical altar in the sense that Old Testament animal sacrifices were made. I said um, the other week that in the Old Testament, sacrifices took place in the temple. And in the New Testament, the temple is the sacrifice. Our bodies are the living sacrifice. So we hunger and thirst after God to the degree that we present our living bodies to him so that he's glorified in our continued, unquenched, and increasing satisfaction in him as we go about doing things in the world. Living, breathing, working, talking, sleeping. And this is why we have useful instruction in in verses like, whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. Or 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Our members, our faculties, include our legs, our arms, our ears, our sexual organs, our nose, our tongue, all of which should be used to glorify God in righteousness. See Romans 6 on this one. So verse 1 is connected Verse 1 is connected with the picture of our body being used as a living sacrifice. But this is closely connected to what verse 2 instructs, which is the renewing of our mind. Can we just go to verse 2 there? Romans 12. One, verse two. Okay, just tell me if it comes up. Um, Okay, so <clears throat> given the use of the word acceptable, which is in both verses, we can see how Paul is drawing us to the fact that, that the acceptable will of God, okay, read in a sec, acceptable will of God includes offering our body as an acceptable sacrifice. I need to make pleasing God the standard for absolutely everything that I do. If I work for someone, my employer, and my aim is to um, uh, please my employer, then my standards are too low. And if I'm a parent and my aim is to raise children who are um, pleased with me, then my standards are too low. My objective should be to raise children who are pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. So verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will. What God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're going to go into what this looks like now. So, we have two instructions. Firstly, do not be conformed. And two, be transformed. Not being conformed to something is not the same as being transformed by something else. So, that's why we're highlighting a distinction here that that Paul has made. So, instruction one is, do not look like the world. Do not behave like the world. Do not speak like the world. Do not choose what the world chooses. Instruction two is be changed. How many Christians give up their inheritance 
because they coast year in and year out. They give up their birthright just by coasting year in and year out. But the gospel demands change. It's abrasive. It's uncomfortable. It's confrontational. It stamps on the accelerator and clips the cable, leaving you on full throttle. (laughs) You know you're born on full throttle? On a highway to hell. (laughs) You're heading there at the speed of light. But sometimes God just comes in and grabs that car and goes, sets it the other way. Why would you not be on full throttle? If this isn't your experience of the gospel, either you have forgotten your early moments in Christ, in which case I pray that he will pour his fire out on you. Or, that's positive, Holy Spirit fire, get re- reignite the flame, not burn and consume in the negative sense. <laughs> Reignite the flames. Or, you've not been exposed to the explosive composite of the gospel. In which case, today is the day of salvation. Instruction two is is be transformed. This is where it's going to get a little bit difficult. I won't kite, I just mean... It's going to be difficult to hear because it was difficult to write. Um, So this is the result of a lot of my recent journey in the Lord. So the things that I'm I'm saying that that Christians do is things that I was doing until relatively recently. So I feel that um, I can speak on it without um, being arrogant because I was there shortly ago. But by the grace of God, he is helping me to be transformed. So baptism in the Spirit... Mary Ellen spoke about last week, should mean ever-increasing holiness worked out in life. Even the most menial tasks, as I spoke about recently, should be by the power of the Holy Spirit. I said, I don't want to turn the steering wheel, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you read the Bible with open eyes, you'll see that God has never ordained anything less than that. Valuing God and having our mind transforms, transformed includes what we are instructed to do in Philippians 4 verse 8. This is one of the good verses on this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And this is important because... So much of the church is stumbling around in a lazy, drunken haze. And they're wondering why their lives aren't so different. Is it so surprising when Christians fill their minds with precisely the same garbage that the rest of the world does? And then they expect to see a transformed life. When I say they, I mean me. But it's ludicrous. Much of what the church does is there is because of their large appetite for gossip, celebrity news, sports results, violent TV shows, 
Television shows filled with incest and foul language. Game of Thrones, I used to watch that. Music videos, useless literature like Fifty Shades of Grey. And yet we are still surprised when we struggle with temptations, react in anger, think violent thoughts, think sexual thoughts, or say things that we should never say. But it's because we know more about celebrities and sportsmen than we do about the great men of God in Scripture. We know more about God than we have experience of Him. And then we wonder. We should be filling our minds with the, with the, with the views of God in the Word, which is the truth. Having our perspectives aligned with the Word and His truth is absolutely critical. That's what it means to be renewed in your minds. This might be a little bit tough, but if you believe that lying in certain situations is appropriate, if you believe abortion is okay, if you agree with gay marriage, if you think sexual activity before marriage is okay, if you think gossiping is okay, your perspectives are not informed by the Word of God. And this has deep, deep, deep implications for your ability to live a transformed life and to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, I promise you that whatever is going in, that you are putting in, affects you. It is taken in willfully. It is digested and it is assimilated into your life, regardless of what you think. That is what is happening. It's the same with our food, same with the air that we breathe. It's time to change our diet, church. So what is this happening in the heart that we spoke about, this inward experience? So Philippians 1, 18 to 24, so if we could just have that up. That's the principal body of text for this last section of, the, of, of our discussion. And I, so I just wanted to read it. Okay. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Far. If Jonathan passes away and someone prays for him to be raised by the dead, you're going to have a very angry man to deal with. <laughs> it was far better. <laughs> um, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Okay. 
So, when Paul says it's his earnest expectation and hope that Christ will be exalted in his body, whether by life or death, what, what precisely is he saying? I think he's highlighting that it doesn't matter whether he's living or dead. That makes the difference. But his concern is that Christ is exalted in his body either way. So the question then becomes, so how does our life or death um, exalt Christ? So we can, we can read the verses which include, um, for to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because for means because. Okay, so we can read these verses twice in, in, in the two ways. Christ will be exalted in my body by death. For me, to die is gain. And you could read it, Christ will be exalted in my body by life for me to live, for to me to live as Christ. So it's, he is exalted in my body by death. Or he is exalted in my body by life. There are only two states in, that can, can worship God. Our life and our death. So let's start with death. If I reckon my dying and being with him as better by far, then he is magnified in my death. Relative to my life. Because it is far better to go and be with him than it is to live. So my, this, this reckoning, this calculation, shows that my value for being with Christ and in deeper intimacy and presence with him far outstrips my value for continuing in my body in this life, this mortal shell which Jonathan says he's eager to shed. Um, and uh, in life, it's somewhat more of a challenge because what does it mean when he says to live is Christ as an expression of worship? Well, we, we find our... Our answer in Philippians 3 verse 8. Sorry, sorry, I to ask this one. 3 verse 8. Okay. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And some translations say I count everything as rubbish. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Oh, that's what it said. It's here. Okay. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, the way that he is exalted in my life is to count everything as loss in view of the gain of, of Christ in my life. So we mentioned last, last, in the last time I spoke that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And this shows us practically why this is so. So our conclusion should be that this inward experience of the heart is one of counting Christ as gain, whether it's in life or in death. And this reckoning of Christ as gain is consistent with our scriptural understanding that he's looking for worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. I'd say then that we have a pretty clear perspective of what worship really is. It's that Christ is made much of in my life. It is that I am cherishing Christ. I am treasuring up Christ. I am savoring Christ. I am satisfied in Christ. I'm delighting in Christ. I am prizing Christ. Oh, that people would understand that to prize Jesus is to praise Jesus. 
you won't have to worry about self-esteem if you esteem Jesus. We're often taught that because Jesus values us, we should therefore value ourselves. And there's truth in this, in the sense that we should look after our bodies as a temple. But if that is our main response to God's value for us, then we have completely missed the mark. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus values you and chose you before the foundation of the world. Therefore, value him. The Bible tells us that our self-worth is dependent on his worth. If your self-worth isn't dependent on his worth, you're dead in the water. You're headed for control by guilt, depression, condemnation, and a life of sin management. Romans 8, do you know the song? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And condemnation comes in when your self-worth is determined by anything other than the worth of Jesus. Sin management is the same lifestyle as being dominated by sin. It's a problem of pride because we're looking for self-approval. We want to sort out the eternal part like, well, as long as I don't burn in the end. Uh, you want that so that you can carry on valuing yourself now. That's the nature that we're born into. But divine approval of God should lead to humility. If it leads to a self-righteous swagger, then this is not the result of true understanding of grace. It should lead to brokenness before God. We were lost, but we are now found. That's grace. I'm worried because itching ears are being satisfied these days. And most preachers sound like business seminars with a few references to God chucked in there. That's from the devil. If you come and you're comforted, going to the wrong place. If you're comforted, you need to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is uncomfortable. We have gospels of sin management and self-help, but there is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. People are not enduring sound teaching and healthy doctrine. And we need to be submitting to the word of God. And I said to someone the other day, an analogy I like to think about it, it's a bit simplified, but it helps, is that think of the Holy Spirit as a surgeon and the scalpel is the word of God. Now, most people have no scalpel or a blunt one. They read nothing, or they read with veiled eyes, or they read books instead of the Bible, and they have milk instead of meat. But the gospel, the Bible, it's a precision instrument capable of dividing flesh from flesh and marrow from marrow, 
Spread, yeah? Spread, yeah. Put that scalpel in the hand of the Holy Spirit and you will see your life transformed. He will cut away. He will prune. But he will not do that while you refuse to have your views in, informed by the word of God. So my encouragement to you is pray for a love of Scripture. That Holy Spirit would have his blade in your life. And Mary Ellen spoke about why praise is a sacrifice. You know, in the example of when I don't feel like it, I praise God. And it's an opportunity I'm never going to have again to praise God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because there will be no more tears when I praise God one day. But there's another element to why praise is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice because it exalts and centers God instead of me. And I love me. My, oh, I love me. That's how I'm born. But God wants to cut that away. And when you make him the center, the old man is displaced. And it's a sacrifice because it's so comforting to just... Come on. It's hot on the altar if you're a sacrifice. If it's lukewarm, you're too far from the flames. That's what Todd White always says. So this, all of this has several implications for us in worship. I want to bring it together. Pursuit of satisfaction in God is not secondary, it's primary. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him because to praise Christ, to prize Christ is to praise Christ. So the desire for God, the seeking of our satisfaction in Him, is the mandate of Scripture. Only He can satisfy the longings of your heart. Second implication, worship becomes radically God-centered. What glorifies God what glorifies God like a people that are utterly persuaded that nothing can satisfy the cry of their hearts except for the worship of God? He becomes the center. Third implication is that worship is affirmed as an end in itself, which Mary Ellen said last week. If we worship because we are responding to the fact that God is and that only he can satisfy us, then we are showing that this is the ultimate point of worship. It points to his satisfying sovereignty. Because if we were worshipping him so that we could be satisfied in something else, then he isn't our satisfaction. Something else is. That's all idolatry is. Fourth point. If worship is being about satisfied in God, then this explains why the New Testament describes life as worship. Because our life can be about satisfaction in God. Alan said earlier, there are lots of zombies out there. And zombie movies are not fiction. They're a very accurate reality of the status of the world. The walking dead. But my God brings the dead to life. He sets the captives free. And he pours healing oil 
on broken and wounded bodies. And he removes the dominion of sin and places us under the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So as we worship now, like for whoever feels led, there's a few people with a funny feeling inside, whoever feels that, to come and get prayer for whatever it is, whether that's to hand over dominion of your life to Jesus, or whether it's because you are bruised and broken and you need oil poured on you, or whether it's because you realize you don't have a transformed life, Whatever it is, we'll have people to pray while we've got worship and after and whatever, or pray with you wherever you feel comfortable. But Trevor, I think it was Trevor Wood when he, when he preached here once. No, it was Michael Cassidy. He came up and he said, don't delay. So that is the word of the Lord to you today. Do not delay. Come to the table of mercy and grace. Bless you guys.